welcome to episode 1661 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Limburger of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing decently. How are you? I'm doing all right. <laughs> all right. We've got a couple team preview segments lined up for today. We're really running through them. It seems like a lot before you start and you look up and see 15 whole episodes and 30 teams ahead of you, but they go pretty quickly once you're in the middle of it. So we'll be talking today to Jesse Darty of the Washington Post about the Washington Nationals, followed by Sahadav Sharma of The Athletic about the Chicago Cubs. Sort of a serendipitous pairing here because the Nationals are kind of Cubs East these days. You got Dave Martinez, Jim Hickey, Kyle Schwarber, John Lester, Jeremy Jeffress, Starlin Castro even, ex Cubs everywhere you look. So we will get to Jesse soon, but you had a brief bit of banter you wanted to bring up first? Yeah, I, th- I thought it would be good for us to just spend a little bit and we don't have to belabor the point because it's been discussed sort of at length other places and we touched on it in our conversation with RJ about some of the, the other aspects of Kevin Mather's comments that were yucky, but I thought it might be good for us to just spend a moment on the service time component of this because I noticed in the Facebook group and I got some of this in my chat this week and I've seen some of it on Twitter that there's this sense that that Kelnick, regardless of what Mather might have said, would would benefit from some time in AAA because he's played so few games in AA and last year was such an odd season. And I thought we should talk about that for a moment because it, it struck me as a little disconcerting that that was people's reactions, not because they're necessarily wrong, which is always the tricky thing when you're dealing with prospects who have not yet proven themselves at the major league level. Like, Kelnick could be on the opening day roster and fall flat on his face, both figuratively and literally, and it could be a disaster. But I think it's important for us to note that like the the terms of this particular exchange have been changed now, and Kelnick wasn't the one to change them, right? So like when he was offered a pre-debut extension and decided not to take it, the the consequence of that for him was that he did not see any time on the major league roster last year. And, you know, Mather joked in his remarks that if there had been a COVID outbreak, that he might have been out there in left field. And that was hilarious to Rotarian. So I think that there might be a generational difference in our sensitive humor, perhaps. But I think it's important to note that like the the existence of the pre-debut extension seems to suggest that readiness is not the only component of this that is important to the Mariners, right? They famously offered and he took a pre-debut extension to Evan White and his bat, which is not as good as Jared Kelnick's and and was not very good in the majors last year, but they kind of gave him a run of it. They were like, here's potentially six years, take your bat and go do, young man. And he did, and it didn't go well, but they didn't, you know, send him down to the alternate site. He didn't lose playing time. They just left him in there to try to figure out how to hit major league pitching. And so I just find the explanation of the organization following Mather's comments to be not particularly compelling because either he is ready as the Mariners player development Twitter account seems to suggest (laughs) and as their PR seems to suggest and he's being held down for service time reasons or he's not quite ready but they thought he was ready enough that if he had signed a pre-debut extension that he would have found his way into the majors last year and so 
it's just I think one of the the aspects of this that is frustrating is that we can't have a pure conversation about Kelnick's readiness to face big league pitching anymore because the terms of engagement have been changed and the Mariners were the ones to change them and so maybe you think he should spend a little time down there and that might be a justifiable view I think that based on some of the looks that we saw or have heard about from the alt site and from camp that like he is ready or at least as ready as say Braden Bishop was who saw outfield time last year and Jose Marmaleos no offense to Jose Marmaleos and Jack Fraley and Philip Irvin but we're not really having that conversation anymore because that's not the conversation that the Mariners were especially interested in having or at least that wasn't the entirety of the conversation they were interested in having so I don't know how does how does it all wash over you did it strike you as a fart in church Ben what a great line from from Jared Kelnick like a fart in church that was good. Yeah. So I'll read a couple of quick comments that Kevin Mather made just so people have that context. He said, as devastating as 2020 was on player development and getting better, we took a risk and brought our high end prospects in, really got to know them. They got high end instruction in Tacoma. That's the taxi squad from last season. The risk was if our major league team had had a COVID outbreak or injuries and we had to call people up from the taxi squad, we were a little short on players because there was no chance you were going to see these young players at T-Mobile Park. We weren't going to put them on the 40-man roster. We weren't going to start the service time clock. There were all kinds of reasons that if we had an injury problem or COVID outbreak, you might have seen my big tummy out there in left field. You would not have seen our prospects playing in T-Mobile Park. So... It seems like he is saying fairly explicitly there that, you know, even if they had an absolute need on the major league roster or really regardless of how those prospects were actually performing, that they were just not going to get the call. And he mentions we were not going to start the service time clock. Right. When it comes to Kelnick, he says uh, we've been talking about him for a year and a half now. He'll be in left field in April, which is, you know, when he says uh, before spring training starts. I mean, he made these comments in early February and he's saying, I know when he will be starting, right? It just so happens to be right after he would be past the point where we right. would lose that year of service time. So not even allowing for the possibility that uh, he had a great offseason or he looks great in spring training, you know, it's just entirely based on that timing, seemingly. He continued, he's a 21-year-old player who is quite confident. We offered him a long-term deal, six-year deal for substantial money with options to go farther. After pondering it for several days and talking to the union, he's turned us down, and in his words, he's going to bet on himself, et cetera, et cetera. We control his major league career for six years, and after six years, he'll be a free agent. We would like him to get a few more at-bats in the minor leagues, probably AAA Tacoma for a month, and then he will likely be in left field at T-Mobile Park for the next six or seven years, and then he'll be a free agent. He won't commit beyond his free agent years. So he does mention wanting to get him a few more at-bats. That's the only part of this that could be construed as actual development as opposed to the previous parts that are just, well, we're just not going to start his service clock really no matter what, no matter how he looks or what his readiness is. And yeah, the fart in church comment that you alluded to, Bob Nightingale talked to Kelnick and his agent, and they insist that it was communicated to Kelnick by the Mariners that if he had signed that contract, he would have debuted in the big leagues last year. His agent said there's no question. Of course, this is coming from his agent. So, you know, right. take that with whatever grain of salt you want to. And the Mariners deny that any promises were made. 
And Kalnick says, it wasn't just communicated one time to me, it was told to me several times. That's the God's honest truth. It got old. And I believe Jerry Depoto declined to comment on those claims specifically. And the team said that no promises had been made. But, you know, it would be consistent with previous situations we've seen with George Springer, with other players where there's an offer of an extension. And if the player signs the extension, they get to be in the big leagues because suddenly service time is not a concern. And if they don't, then suddenly they need seasoning. So it's not a new situation. And Mather put it pretty explicitly you know i guess there's like a tiny bit of gray area there but really he said it pretty plainly more plainly than teams typically do which is why it provoked such a response and one of the many reasons why he was forced to resign after that i doubt that was really the primary reason but you know i doubt that what he said really was uh, dramatically different from what people with the mariners think but the fact that he stated it so plainly it's just it's hard to win a grievance it's hard to prove readiness i mean that's just a tough thing like there's always some amount of plausible deniability and when you're talking about someone who was 20 years old last season and as depoto said had played 21 games above a ball like it's certainly plausible that a player like that as good as he looked as promising as he is would benefit from more time in the minors so I don't consider myself qualified to pass judgment on Kelnick's readiness. You know, I, I haven't seen him and I'm not a prospect evaluator, so I, I can't really comment on his specific skills or readiness. But we've seen the situation enough times to know that there are often cases where it is less about the player's readiness than it is about the team's financial concerns and service time concerns. So it certainly seems like this is in line with those previous situations. And We'll see if Mather's comments being on the record will actually, if Kelnick does decide to pursue some sort of grievance, if he is not on the opening day roster, whether that might make a difference, you know, because Chris Bryant had a pretty clear case, it seemed like, and he still lost, which I, I gather had something to do with the fact that he was called up to replace Mike Olt, right? Like that's why they called him up ultimately. And so there was sort of a, well, a guy got hurt and that's why we called him up and the timing fit there. So at least you could say that, yes, we were really keeping him down because we thought he needed more work in the minors, but then the situation changed. We had an opening, we had a need. So that's why we brought him up when we brought him up. So you can kind of get around these things. It's hard to prove that someone was ready or that you did not promote them because of service time as opposed to lack of readiness. It certainly is. And I don't mean to suggest, and I know you're not saying I'm doing this, but I don't mean to suggest that this is a clear cut case in terms of his, the likelihood that he will prove sort of victorious in the event of a grievance. Like you said, these are very tricky cases and we don't have a lot of precedent for what is persuasive to arbiters in this case. I think it is noteworthy that in the decision for Bryant's grievance that the arbitrator specifically said that they were not ruled like making a determination about the legality of service time manipulation as a institution or construct, right? But that they were concerned with Chris Bryant's particular case. So yeah, I think that it it will be an uphill battle. I think the the very 
just the the nature of the 2020 season is likely to work against Kelnick in terms of his ability to prevail in the event of a grievance because it was such a strange year and he, you know, he didn't see normal game action, the kind of normal game action that you might be able to point to and say, well, he tore up AAA and so of course he should be on the opening day roster. But I think that, you know, there's there's the question of whether or not he will prove to sort of get his way and be awarded additional service time in the event that he doesn't make the opening day roster this year um, and thus is able to to get free agency on a six-year time frame instead of a seven. But I just think that it isn't at all unusual. This is a thing that is pervasive in baseball. But I think that the Mariners are, are a case where it's perhaps particularly <laughs> important for them to do everything that they can to win when they have not been a good baseball team. And I don't know if Jared Kelnick would have carried them to the expanded postseason last year. And I am quite confident that if that team had managed its way into the wild card round, that they would not have made their way out of it, right? Like this was not a particularly right. good baseball team. And it's also a baseball team that started Braden Bishop and gave him 34 plate appearances and he had a 37 WRC plus. So, mm-hmm. and I don't want to pick on Braden Bishop. He is by all accounts a lovely human being and I'm sure it was super cool for him to get time up there. But, you know, the organization should be scratching and clawing and doing everything it possibly can to try to move the the product on the field forward because they have been so bad for so long and I know that's not how it works for everyone but I think that like that concern that business concern and the you know year of free agency that they are potentially going to rob Jared Kelnick of like that shouldn't be fans problems that's not a thing you have to worry about you just want to watch your team succeed and by the way they have a mechanism to retain Jared Kelnick services for longer than six years it's called free agency <laughs> like they can <laughs> sign him to a deal it's not like he hits the market and then they're like ah now he shall never return we have no recourse it's like yes you do offer him a fair contract and maybe he'll come back because guys like to play for a franchise for their whole career and his good buddy Julio Rodriguez and his stellar English are coming up behind him. Like this is not, there's the business excuse for this stuff, but we don't have to pretend that these mechanisms are like handed down through scripture. They're what we decide. And we should decide that other stuff matters more than jobbing a talented baseball player of a couple of weeks of service time so you can keep him longer, like winning with him or giving your fans something to be exciting about or excited about or just treating people well. Like we can choose that those things matter more. And I wish that we would. So, yeah. and some teams have, and it's great when they do and when it works out, you know, when they're rewarded for that, when the player just performs really well or plays some part in playoff run. And then it's just completely not only did you make the nice decision for your player but you actually made the the best possible competitive decision too so there are counter examples it's not like well every single team does this not that that would make it perfectly defensible but you can't use that defense really because there are exceptions and you know there are also cases where i think we're a bit spoiled maybe by some of the prospects who have come up and have for done sure. so well for from sure. day one so you know there are times where i mean like last year when people were saying oh the tigers should start the season with casey mize and Tarek scoobel on the roster and then when they did ultimately call up mize and scoobel they were terrible <laughs> you right. know and and maybe things would have been different if they'd had more time in the big leagues i don't know but the point is that like not every 
top prospect even is a savior in the immediate season. So it's, you know, not a, a sure thing. And there really are players who actually do need more minor league seasoning yep. and are still working on things. And sometimes those weaknesses get exposed when they get up to the big leagues. So, you know, it's not always a, a complete uh, fiction that they still have things to work on. So just want to point that out. But I agree sure. that definitely like, if a player is ready from a fan's perspective, it's it's just a bummer that you think that your team would not want to put the best product on the field and the most compelling personalities and just get that started whenever those players happen to be ready, not when it makes uh, the most sense for the team's bottom line, which it may not even. I mean, there have been right. plenty of cases where <laughs> there's been a big fuss about, oh, we've got to have that extra year of service time. And then ultimately, it just doesn't really matter because whatever the team is not contending at that point, the player's not even productive at that point. The player's no longer with the team at that point. The player signed an extension by then. So sometimes it turns out to be much ado about nothing ultimately and then it's even more of a a waste really that the player was not up when they potentially could have helped so you know I don't consider the service time thing to be like the biggest problem facing baseball just because generally it only affects a handful of players per year you know there are only a, a certain subset of players who are like good enough prospects that they could probably help immediately and also the team has some sort of incentive to try to retain their control so it it's not you know as sweeping an issue as other things we've talked about like you know for minor sure. league pay for instance right. where especially because in in cases with uh, these top prospects we're often talking about players who maybe were big prospects from the start and so they got big bonuses and were drafted early and maybe they have a little bit of financial security and that sort of thing so there are more pervasive issues that affect more players, but it's still just kind of a, an anti-competitive thing that I think it would be better for baseball if it were not an issue. And certainly like the CBA, you know, this is a, a matter of collective bargaining and you could fault the Players Association for not yep. taking more care to iron out this loophole here you know it's there are many solutions that have been proposed for ways to do this it's a tricky thing and it's tough and as we've said it's hard to determine with any absolute certainty when someone is ready but you know this is clearly against the spirit of the current agreement it's just very hard to prove that that's what's happening in an actionable way so if that were a priority going into the next round of bargaining, which will be contentious and there will be many issues to be sorted out there, but it would be nice if this were one of them, just so that this did not become an issue and a black eye for baseball year after year. I agree. And I think that you're right to say that not all of these guys are going to you know, be good right away and that some of them might take time. And I think that part of, part of the benefit of of teams being sort of honest dealers when it comes to this kind of stuff is then you can have that conversation really just be about the player and his readiness and what he needs. And if you treat prospects generally in good faith and you bring them up when they're ready and you don't try to do this stuff, then if you have to keep them down for a little while because they need to make an adjustment or whatever, we're going to look at that and say, yeah, like that's good that he's getting the time he needs to figure stuff out so that this doesn't snowball on him. And, you know, the Mariners have plenty of examples of guys brought up too soon who, right. you know, 
it derailed their entire careers, really, to be brought up before they were ready. Like, we, no one wants another Mike Zanino, right? I mean, like, not as a human being, he seems fine, but as a player, like, no one wants that trajectory for someone. So I don't mean to suggest that, you know, like, all of these guys are ready. If Mather had been more specific in his comments and said, there's no way that you would have seen Jared Kelnick or Julio Rodriguez, I wouldn't be griping about it because I don't think Julio's ready for the big leagues. He's going to, I think he'll be a very good player. He's a great prospect, but I don't think he's ready for big league action. So I, I don't think that a blanket statement of like, all of these guys are ready right away all the time is, is an accurate one. But I do think that you want there to be fair dealing here because these guys don't have any alternative but to work for the team that drafts them or signs them. And so it's important for for their careers to be able to start off on a foot that is about what they can bring to the table as a baseball player because that's what they're being paid to do and should be paid fairly to do. So there's there's that part. And I also just wonder, like 2020 is 2020 and 2021 is going to be a weird year, but like in 2019, like the Mariners were in the bottom third of the league in terms of attendance. You know, you're telling me that like a a good Mariners team that finally makes the postseason isn't going to be a financial boon to ownership. Like, right. you know, fill up the ballpark. T-Mobile's beautiful. A bunch of bright young things on the field helping you, you know, soldier on and finally be a contender in the West. Like that's that's good for baseball generally, but it's also just good for the Mariners. So I think that there's a lot of blame, as you said, to go around for how we find ourselves in the situation. And I really do hope that in the next CBA negotiation that the Players Association views minor leaguers as future members rather than like right. leverage to get what they want for big leaguers. So I don't yeah. want to let them off the hook for what for their role in this either. But, you know, the Mariners have the ability to make a decision about this particular player right now. And so I hope that when they do, it's it's about him and his readiness rather than the potential to keep him for an extra year. Because like if he comes up and he's amazing, there's precedent for what that does for your team and it's good stuff. Mm -hmm. So like Let's be about good stuff. Yeah. And there's obviously a morale component to this. Like right. it's demoralizing when one of your top prospects feels this way and is this vocal about it too. Right. I mean, when Kelnick says it was literally like someone farted in church, that is the exact expression on everybody's face. He's referring to when Jerry DePoto addressed the Mariners players about Mather's comments and supposedly apologized to Kelnick for what Mather had said about him without expressing that they were actually going to do anything different than what Mather said they were going to do. I mean, you know, that's not great. It's, again, debatable whether this actually has an impact several years down the road when Kelenic is maybe making a decision about staying with right. the team. Maybe it doesn't linger. You know, people get over these disputes. But still, when you want this person to be one of the faces of your franchise for years to come, it's just not a great foot to start off on. And if it is the foot you're going to start off on, you should perhaps tell your player development Twitter account that tweeting, it just <laughs> sounds different with a video of him in the cage is at the very least weird. <laughs> yeah. It's at least weird, Ben. It's a little <laughs> weird. It's a little weird. I was like, are you all talking to one another this week? Is everybody grumpy at work and so they're not chatting? 
<laughs> yeah, didn't the, the Mariners Twitter account also tweeted like a, a reference to how Mather had called Marco yeah. Gonzalez boring? And it was like, if this is boring, like... Sign us up. And it's like, yeah, like okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I know the social media person is not Kevin Mather. And right. like Kevin Mather's comments don't reflect the social media person's views, but like he's the president and CEO of the team. So it's like <laughs> you can't immediately after your highest ranking executive says that and then resigns like totally pivot like oof boy that was that was wild wasn't it when <laughs> the mariners said that yesterday but now we're the mariners of today so yeah that was a little odd they should just have like a vice president of feel whose <laughs> job it is to be like okay here are the ways that we could trip over ourselves this week after a scandal let's collect <laughs> ourselves and not do that <laughs> yeah very much like when we say that we wish people would hire more consultants when they make a baseball scene in a movie or a show exactly. or something. It's like, does this look like baseball? Is Are you screwing this up somehow? Talk to someone who would know. Yeah. yeah. Have a person who's there to say, don't refer to this historically disadvantaged group in this horrible way. Do not buy giveaways for children that inadvertently look like genitalia. And do not <laughs> praise, but also insult your top prospects and import players in the same week and like that's a weird job but i think that's probably worth like 75 grand a year sure all right let us take a quick break and we will be right back with jesse darty to discuss the nationals followed by sahadov to talk about the cubs this old boy's got the dc blues they got me on the run We are back, and we are joined now by Jesse Darty, who covers the Washington Nationals for the Washington Post. Hello, Jesse. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So you authored a book about the 2019 Nationals World Series team, Buzzsaw, the improbable story of how the Washington Nationals won the World Series. And I guess you probably missed out on a bit of a book tour last year, and the Nationals missed out on their victory lap. So I wanted to ask at least about the latter, because, you know, they got deprived of the opportunity of playing in front of fans who were basking in the aura of that championship, and presumably they missed out on a nice attendance boost that would have come after that too so both in terms of morale and finances how big a blow was that timing yeah yeah ben you're like you just threw the alley-oop buzzsaw paperback comes out april 6th so i just got i got a book plug in like the first 10 words i say on your (laughs) podcast no it was it was tough i think i mean i for the reasons you win a championship i'd say like probably number one is personal satisfaction and then probably somewhere in the two to five range is like the celebration and the and the ovations and they had like a three-day celebration plan the weekend the Mets were in town which happened to be the first series but also felt like pretty good trolling to me too and I, I think that there was a lot of talk about it I mean frankly like as were many topics in 2020 I think like not having it was maybe Trump by having to talk about not having it all the time mm-hmm. like that team like had to answer like upwards of 200 questions about the the no celebration, you know, sort of opening weekend, which was that uh, weird rained out game against the Yankees on the SPN. So I, 
I think like it was a distraction in the sense that like that's all anyone wanted to sort of think about was like what you're not having. And then frankly, they were just a really bad team. So it, it, financially, I, I think there would have been a really big ticket boost. I mean, they say they sell out a lot more games than they do because of actual bodies in the park. But uh, I, I don't know if it would have been like really noticeable on their books. So I, I think like just the, from a morality standpoint, it was – you know, it was wasn't great, but I don't think it was like something that people were, you know, too upset about after that opening, you know, one or two days. We're gonna talk about some of the additions that they made in a minute, but I wanna I wanna pose a hypothetical to you because we have just seen a team give a very young, very good player a massive contract extension. And when you are feeling around for guys who might be as good as Fernando Tatis Jr., I think Juan Soto definitely comes up as as a potential yeah. nomp there, albeit with some differences. So has there been any talk uh, between the org and Soto about maybe getting one of these very long, very big extensions done he's coming into his fourth year so i'm curious what the state of affairs is when it comes to that yeah there there was last spring to my knowledge there hasn't been since and those talks did not get very far i I think an interesting element of like the tatis news was the juan soto relationship to it and i was in the camp that you know the second i see those figures i start to sort of tune my brain to what it might take to to extend soto in the future should the Nationals do that? But I do think there are a lot of elements at play, like the idea that, and this is not what you're saying, of course, but the idea sort of that was out there that like the Nationals now sort of like super know that they have to sign, you know, Juan Soto to a long-term contract because of Tatis. And it's like, no, they knew that even before the Padres yeah. opened their checkbook. Like that was very evident. Probably in sometime in 2018, it became very evident. And, uh, but I also think that Scott Boris is a, is a big player in this. And, Knowing the ways he deals with his clients, I think you can look at Bryce Harper as a really good example, Anthony Rendon maybe to a lesser extent. But uh, I I think the idea of Boris wanting to often bring his big name clients to free agency is often framed as wanting to drum up this bidding war and have this sort of like grand free agent experience that ultimately drives up a price. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. But I also think that Scott Boris – and in, in this case, I know this specifically with Juan Soto, sees that he can actually use the system, however long the system's in place, to make a lot of money in arbitration, not tie himself up into a long-term contract yet. And in the process of making that money in those you know f- six years of team control, build his value to the point that when he actually does go to sign that extension, he's even more valuable than he would if he signed it tomorrow. So I think those factors are at play, and I don't think it's going to have a major effect on how the on how. Juan Soto and his side approaches the possibility of an extension. One person who has signed an extension with the Nationals in the past and also another long-term contract as a quasi-free agent is Steven Strasburg, who was as responsible as anyone for that 2019 title, and he was almost absent from the 2020 team. And I was interested in how the Nationals chose Strasburg over Rendon. It it seemed like they had decided that they could only keep one and that Strasburg was their man. And he missed most of last season, pitched in two games, had carpal tunnel issues. Rendon went on to have a a Rendon-esque season for the Angels. And it's too soon to really rue that decision or, or really evaluate it in its entirety. But I wonder where Strasburg's health stands now, because that was really the one concern about him when they resigned him was, well, he doesn't have the greatest track record for health. And that came back to bite him again last year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right in that it's too early to sort of assess whether a Strasburg or Rendon pick was sort of viable. But 
Uh, I think about it all the time. I mean, it's like, it's sort of the, it feels like a really critical moment of this team post-World Series. And um, the reason why I, I was really against the way they structured their last offseason in bringing back Strasburg and not Rendon is because I didn't think they adequately replaced Rendon's production, whether it was going to be with like a Josh Donaldson type sign or even piecemealing it with, other, with better players than they did. But I guess this year they did that a bit better. So it almost seems like the Strasbourg signing makes more sense now because the offense is a bit better than it was in, in 2020. And and health-wise, he is on track. Uh, you know, as, as someone covering the Nationals, like you're always – your radar is always up. Like uh, it's, it's hard to take at face value when you hear about Steven Strasbourg's health. And that's not really a knock to him. It's just, you know, he's he's had a lot of ailments over the years and, and you're always watching. It's like – you know, anytime he's like, did he throw 32 pitches instead of 35? Oh, what's going on? You know, it's, it's like, it's always like the, that, that's always the topic. And, uh, but as of now he's thrown his, you know, the usual number of bullpens that he would in spring training. He's on track to be eased into starting, but that's, that's like most springs too, even when he's not coming off surgery. So I think that's another sort of red flag thing. That's, that's more normal for him than most guys. Um, but as of now, his health is uh, pointing up and it seems like he'll be on track as of now to, to start on, you know, the season. I guess we can stick with Nationals stalwarts who had some injury concern, although obviously not as severe as as Strasburg's, and talk about Scherzer for a second. You know, he had what what we might think of as slightly a down year for him relative to some of his prior highs. You know, and I think concerningly, his his peripheral numbers, his FIP was a full run higher than it was the year before, but it was also 67 innings. So who knows? I'm I'm curious sort of what the state of his ankle is, if that is a, a concern um, for them as they go into the season and sort of what your expectations are for him and what is his final contract year with the organization. Do you think that he is, he is destined to sort of re-up with Washington or might we see him in a different uniform come? 2022 yeah it's it's so interesting like i to answer the ankle question i don't think it's a major concern right now i I kind of put it in the same bucket as like the groin strain he had last july where it's like anything lower body with him doesn't concern me a ton if it was like in the neck shoulder area that's like why he missed right six weeks in 2019 and ultimately why he get had to get bumped back in that in that you know really dramatic world series stretch uh but i think he'll be on track fairly soon he's he's throwing he's been off the mound twice now and uh, I don't like he, today he was jogging down in West Palm Beach. His ankle wasn't wrapped. And those are like small little tiny things, but it, it doesn't seem to me like it's a major concern. And then in terms of expectations, you mentioned like his fit was higher and it's, it's, you know, really short season, but I, I get really confused with a guy like him because the 2020 sort of valuation conundrum is one thing, but also like his age is another. So is that, was the regression because of the wacky schedule and the ramp up and, and the sort of factors that we've talked about ad nauseum in the last six months, or was it because he's actually starting to go on a slide? And that seems like a really crazy concept for people who've watched Max Scherzer defy the aging curve for the last three or four years, but it has to happen at some point. So uh, my expectations are that he will be better, but that's maybe blind faith because I've seen him just be really good in a lot of starts. And it's hard for me to imagine um, what that sort of slow deterioration of Max Scherzer even looks like, even though, like I said, it's it's going to look like something at some point. And in terms of him staying with the team, like an interesting part with him, obviously, is like the Nats are so known for their <laughs> deferred money and they're going to be paying him a lot in 2021, whether he's in their uniform or not. So 
that's to me, it, and then the, a new contract would be money on top of that. But it's a matter of like, do you want to be paying Scherzer in like the fifteen million dollar range to to face you or or go elsewhere on a on a short term high AAV deal, or do you want to just knock his AAV down a little bit and retain him and and keep him in Washington? I, I would imagine it's the latter. I don't know. I think it will depend also on how uh, he pitches this year. But it seems like that's the most prudent strategy for them if he's still a viable one, you know, ace or number two starter in a rotation. While we're on the subject of the starting rotation, John Lester is in town now. He is backing up that top trio. After that, there are some question marks. So who looks in line to be the fifth starter? And then if there are injury issues with Scherzer or with Strasburg or anyone else, who would be behind them to provide depth? Yeah, I mean, let's just say we could have like we could dial this back and act like it's 2017 because it's the same conversation the Nationals yeah. have been having about their fifth starter now for the last four four or five years. I mean, the options are similar to what they have been. It's I think Joe Ross will be the fifth starter just in terms of what everyone's saying. There's like slight concerns about him having opted out last year and then ramping back up, but I think they'll go away fairly quickly if he can you know look sharp in his first two or three exhibition starts. And then after him, there's Eric Fetty, there's Austin Voth, there they got Rogelios Armenteros off waivers from the Diamondbacks in December, and I think he'll be in that like eight nine depth mix. And then it really falls off. Uh, you have Ben Bramer, who's made one career start. You have Seth Romero, who's still a major question mark and went to the bullpen for a bit last year in, in a desperation move when there was a bunch of guys hurt. Uh, and then there's some guys who I think are just really far away. There's like Jonah Don is a is a prospect they protected from the Rule Five draft, and just it kind of just gets farther and farther away from anyone who has you know even a even a bit of major league experience. So the the pitching depth from eight on isn't I think what the Nationals would necessarily want. And I mean, and most teams frankly don't have the depth they would want at that point. But two two moves in the last year have sort of thinned that. One was sending Will Crow to the Pirates in the Josh Bell trade, and the other was moving Kyle McGowan, who was one of those like depth starters, swing guys, moving him to the bullpen full time. So they've definitely thinned their their starting depth. They tried to address it a bit with Armenteros, but it it gets uh it gets pretty dicey after you get kind of past the Joe Ross Eric Fetty phase. One of the other things that Washington has been trying to do for the last couple of years, apart from shore up the fifth starter spot, is fix this bullpen. The bullpen. We have to talk about the Nationals' bullpen because they always, they always have such high ambitions, these great dreams, and then they get mad at guys and send them away in the middle of the summer, and we all kind of scratch our heads and wonder what they're up to. They were able to land Brad Hand this year, who you know I think has a long track record as a very good reliever. I think there are some concerns about what his velocity did last year, but I assume that they are just going to slot him into the closer spot and then try to figure it out from there. Yeah, it's like I often say to my editors, like I can write a bullpen story, and they're like, yeah, but you can also just do that next week. Like it's like <laughs> the Nationals bullpen is or next month, uh, next year even. So uh, I I think yeah, Dave Martinez even said recently that in a perfect world, and, and that's such a scary phrase in a perfect world that that Brad Hand would be their closer. Uh, and I think that means a variety of things. Like that means that they were able to get through this seventh and eighth with Tanner Rainey, Will Harris, and Daniel Hudson, and they were able to find another lefty to potentially get outs, whether it's Luis Avalon or Sam Clay. And then if that's the perfect world and Brad Hand's rested, then he'll be the closer. I, I didn't take that as he'll be our ninth inning guy. Like the Nationals have been pretty rigid in that over the last couple of years, but I think we've seen situations in which Davey has broken from the mold of like, setting up or funneling your whole game to one pitcher. Like it was Daniel Hudson in, in the end of 2019 previous before that it was 
Sean Doolittle for two and a half years, but we've seen him evolve as sort of a bullpen manager, frankly, uh, slowly, but uh, kind of to get up to speed of how a lot of teams are managing their bullpens and start to really value matchups more than just sort of having one guy committed to the ninth inning. So it sounded like he's, he'd lean hand if everything was you know right and everything lined up in the way it does in his head. But uh, Daniel Hudson's an option too. Tanner Rainey is, and and the construction of the bullpen kind of, and then Jeremy Jeffers too is a, is a non-roster invite and, and could sneak his way into being a high leverage guy. So they definitely have more options than they ever do. I don't expect them to be remaking the bullpen in July. Uh, if they do, it's good because they're contending, but it's bad because someone got hurt. Uh, so I, I I think that they've definitely done a better job in the offseason of addressing those needs than they have uh, in, a, in a while, maybe, maybe ever under Mike Rizzo. So in order to improve their offense and fill some positional holes, the Nationals acquired just a couple of old school sluggers with light tower power this offseason. Although if you looked at their stats from last season, neither one would seem to be a benefit on the offensive side. Of course, if you look at the longer track record, there's a lot of potential there. But Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber, you just wrote about some changes that the Nationals are making with Schwarber and what the impact of those might be. Bell is someone who has made some swing changes in the past that seemed to pay off, and then he apparently regressed last year. So what are the expectations for them? Because, of course, they are bat-first players. So if they're not hitting, you're not getting a lot from them. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of the national season hinges on how those two guys bounce back, or if they do, rather. And I I think that the Nationals are are framing them as bounce back candidates because that's what they're going to do. You're you're not going to trade for Kyle Schwarber and be like, we expect him to possibly be what he was in 2020, but uh, we hope he's not. But that said, I think... You know, both guys, like you like like you mentioned, are go- undergoing some sort of swing change tweaks. Sorber is getting squatty, as he called it. Um, I didn't know that was a technical hitting term until yesterday, but he is squatty now, and which I guess just means he's he's crouching a bit more than usual. Uh, and and Josh Bell, I, I haven't seen yet exactly what his change is, but we know he was famously called Tinker Bell in the minors and is um, frequently changing up on what he does at the plate. So, I mean, the Nationals are confident. I, I think, you know, you look at hard hit percentage for those guys. They they were, they were thought that showed that they could still excel in the way they did in previous years. They'll have a lot. They'll, you know, conceivably have more runners on base um, than they usually do and, and get pitches to hit. That goes for Bell especially, going from hitting with whoever was in front of him in Pittsburgh's order to pro- most likely having Trey Turner and Juan Soto in front of him could – create some traffic and force pitchers to uh, have to have to sort of come and, and come in on him and, and give him what he wants to hit. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that the, the idea of a bounce back candidate is uh, probably a lot more alluring for a GM when the players are 28, 27 years old than they are when you know they're 38 and 39, like some of this roster, <laughs> but it definitely remains to be seen how they're going to come out of the gate. And there's, there's no, uh, there's no mystery why those were like, you know, one, one year deals or why the prospect return for Josh Bell wasn't eye popping. It's like there, there definitely are concerns. I want to talk about the idea, the idea of prospects, the like theoretical concept of prospects for a second, because this farm system is not renowned for being especially impressive. And I imagine that that is going to be a point of emphasis for them as this core starts to age out and some of these guys start to to fall off. But I'm curious what the organization's approach to player development was in the last season, because obviously they were able to get some guys to the alt site, but that can't accommodate an entire farm system's worth of prospects. So what was their approach to trying to move? the ball forward for some of their prospects and what is their sense of the time horizon for when they might be considered one of the game's better forms again yeah i mean i think that's an incredibly long process and i don't think it has even really 
begun and the approach during the shutdown uh, was was probably not as robust as the Nationals would have liked. I mean, I think it was regularly, you know, keeping touch with guys over Zoom or FaceTime or calls to make sure they were doing specific programs. They were, I think the programs were maybe not quite as individualized as, as some teams, but um, they, they did their best based on the pecking order. And they, they were able to get maybe more, more of the top to mid-tier prospects to the alt site than other clubs because they had so many injuries at the major league level. So at, over the course of this, of the summer, you were seeing maybe names you wouldn't have expected, like whether it was Jackson Clough or Israel Pineda or Sterling Sharp coming back from Miami after going there in the Rule 5 draft that 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 you wouldn't have expected coaches to be able to work with hands-on um, at the beginning in July, but then were able to for at least a couple of weeks going into going into instructs and, and at least get some face-to-face instruction. So the, the prospect question and, and the system for the Nationals is, is a major one, especially with, um, you know, Max Scherzer being – the Nationals hate to talk about windows, uh, but frankly, this year is the end of one. I mean, you're, you have Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin guaranteed in, on the rotation. You have a older bullpen. You have team-controlled guys like Juan Soto and Trey Turner who are not, you know, breaking the bank yet and, and really tilting your payroll in their direction. So I think that that prospect and that system makeover has to come sooner rather than later. I, I think if they're not contending, come – uh, July, it's going to be fascinating to see how they can maneuver with a lot of these guys on one-year contracts and potentially stash up and, and start to remit that rebuild um, independently of the draft and the and the and the good work they do in in Latin America. So uh, it's something I'm always looking for, but it's it's hard to put my thumb on where they go from here or even what that starting point's like when you've brought up and fast-tracked Carter Keboom, Luis Garcia, Juan Soto, Victor Robles, and all those guys um, over the last couple of years. It does thin your system, but it also definitely creates a, a void that needs to be filled. Yeah, so I want to pivot from player development to a couple players in the majors who have not developed as hoped. And you just mentioned them, Carter Keboom and Victor Robles. And they're both 23 now, and they did not take steps forward in 2020. That would be a kind way to put it. Keboom hasn't hit yet in a small sample in the big leagues. He was asked, of course, to replace Anthony Rendon last year, which is not an easy assignment, but didn't hit as anyone would have hoped. And I know you recently spoke to and wrote about him. So curious about his outlook for this year. And then Robles, too, you can take them in either order. But he's someone who I think there were hopes that there might be more in his bat, even though he looked very vulnerable in in the World Series. That was a, a tiny sample, but you could see some of his weaknesses as a hitter exposed. And then last year, you could see that for more uh, of the season. And also, it seemed like he, at least according to the various defensive stats, took a step back in the outfield where he was one of the most valuable defenders the previous year. And I don't know what to make of, you know, 50 some games uh, in a pandemic year, but it was unlike the previous year, you know, his, his glove was not bailing out his bat. Yeah. I'll, I'll go Carter first. I, you know, this is like such a baseball cliche and it sounds like something someone in the front office would say, but like he is at least publicly incredibly even keeled for someone who has failed a lot in a very small, short time at the beginning of their career. Like I, I am as someone who's covered him really closely since he's been in the majors and, and even before then, I've been really impressed by how he's seemingly been able to forget. Like I think about being 21 and absolutely, you know, falling face first in front of 40,000 people. And I get horrified, you know I mean? I, I guess that's the difference between me and a major league baseball player, but he seems like he's pretty measured about what the expectations are, what he's been bad at and how he's going to go from here. Uh, like technically he's, he's moved his hands up a bit and tried to get them farther away from his body. He thinks that's going to, uh, 
you know, just help him at the plate and be a better starting position. Uh, I think he was just getting crushed with off, with off speed last year and just over and over and over. And he just, he just could not adjust. And frankly, like when I look at him, I see someone who's maybe been a bit hurt by the circumstances in that he, he could be a very viable young sort of figuring it out third baseman on a handful of teams in this league. He might not be the right third baseman or he very well could not be the third, right third baseman for a team that, as I said earlier, is sort of at the end of this rope of a, of a specific era that has maybe a, a, a sort of urgency to win this year because of its aging core and because of the way its payroll is structured and because of all the deferred money that's coming their way and um, beyond 2021. So uh, I, I just think he's maybe caught in the middle of, of being a guy who should be able to figure it out in the major leagues and, and hasn't quite spoiled his chance because like, because of the small sample size that you mentioned, but maybe being in the wrong circumstance to do that. And it'll be interesting to see if the additions of Schwarber and Bell and whether or not they are able to bounce back like we just talked about, will kind of provide some cover for Carter to to learn a bit more and and move at his own pace rather than come up and just start being a world beater like Juan Soto was or even Victor Robles to a lesser extent uh, who was ready you know when he came up and, and started in 2019. So then on Victor, like I, I it's you know the, the organization has simplified it to that he gained you know 15 plus pounds of muscle weight during the pandemic just standing and sitting inside and lifting and uh, when he came back he just like physically was not himself and you saw that in first steps in the outfield you saw it in space running you saw it with his you know sprint speed numbers and then you saw probably result of the plate that i think can less be less explained by that physical uh difference and probably more explained by as you pointed to uh, some of the things he didn't do well in 2019, spilling over to 2020, and just really showing in a small sample size where he never really did adjust. And that's just, you know, chasing too many pitches. That's not really being able to make contact in a lot of breaking balls, getting beat in the lower, lower half of the zone a ton. And also, um, you know, I, I think probably thinking he's more, he's more of a power hitter than he may be and, and probably swinging for the fences. And that sounds like such a cliche. You think of like a five-year-old just like swinging out of their shoes. But uh, I think he does have to make sort of a approach adjustment after maybe flashing some power in his early years and in the minors and now having to realize that that's not necessarily his game or how he can best su- succeed at the plate. Well, we won't make Nationals fans too sad. We'll talk about someone who did uh, have a a really sterling year, and that's Trey Turner, who, you know, I I imagine we can attribute some of this just to just good health, but took, you know, pretty much everything from his 2019 season and improved upon it. He walked more, he struck out less, he hit for average without a huge spike in Babbitt, he hit for more power. So what can we attribute Trey Turner's good season to at the plate? I know that the defensive metrics at least are a little more mixed. We're kind of down on him at Fangrass. I know that by Statcast metrics, he did better. But what was uh, the source of his sort of bounce back 2020? Not that 2019 was so bad, but 2020 was a, a good year for him. So what is that all about? Yeah. And I think he probably agree with your uh, defensive metrics more than Statcast. Honestly, he's, pr- he's very self-critical about his defense. Uh, and in terms of his season, like anecdotally, like you can tell when he's off, when he's just getting be over and over by by low and away breaking balls and he's like one hand swinging and he's going down to one knee sometimes his head's way out like he was really locked in last year that pitch that I sort of and, and hitting coaches have said this and and I've heard him say that when that 
pitch when he's going the other way with it, he's really locked in. He's he's not pulling off. He's not getting you know he's not swinging through it in a way that you know really makes him look silly, frankly. And 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 that happened a lot throughout the 2019 season. And some of his slumps were that was really the common denominator was that pitchers just saw that cold zone and just. Uh, just kept going to it, and he and he couldn't figure out a way to adjust. Last year, we didn't see that a lot. We saw a lot of like doubles and triples in the right center gap. We saw a lot of singles through the right side. Uh, I, I don't think it's it's solely a a matter of him going the other way more. I think that can often be sort of an easy way that coaches and and teams try and explain players hitting well. But I think for him, once he does that, uh, pitchers have to go away from just pounding that over and over and start throwing him inside more. That's when his power comes out. He is powerful for a guy of his size and obviously his speed plays really well once he's on base. So I thought maybe him covering what's usually a really tough part of the zone for him and, and making it, making pitchers feel that they couldn't just exploit that repeatedly had a really good effect for him. And and you start to see how he could put together a good season solely by by just taking away a weakness and letting his strengths just play up that much more. As, as you mentioned, you know, he, he did some things well in 2019, but they just looked a lot better in 2020. And I think that was the root of it. Ryan Zimmerman is back for at least one more year here at age 36. He didn't hit very well in 2019 and then opted out last year. So it's been a while since he's uh, been around. So with someone like him, who's a fan favorite and uh, a mentor type, you know, that's probably a, a big part of the reason for that mutual reunion there, but is there any path to playing time? Because, you know, we've just talked about sort of the, the corner solutions. So how does Zimmerman potentially fit into that? Yeah. I mean, I think he, aside from being face of the franchise, a $1 million player at this point, a one-year contract, which nationals seem to really uh, love this, this winter. I think he was the right compliment for Josh Bell. I mean, I think, you could have gotten another guy like that. They, they were interested in like Carlos Santana. And that was that was before the Bell trade even happened. But you could get a better right-handed bat to pair with Bell, someone who could maybe play even more. But I think they're they're envisioning Bell's going to start, you know, five six days a week, and and Zimmerman will be their first pinch hitter off the bench and uh, or the big spot pinch hitter. But uh, a better defender than Bell, especially with the glove, I think you know the, both guys maybe present throwing concerns. Zimmerman has you know famously or infamously lowered his arm slot um, since he was a really strong defensive third baseman. And, uh, but I think that obviously Bell is leaves a lot to be desired from the right side of the plate and Zimmerman can spell him against tough lefties. And then also maybe you know, be a, a late game um, defensive sub. I think, you know, part of the one thing I've heard about Josh Bell is that, you know, he's, he has trouble picking balls and, and that could be a tough thing in the late innings, especially in a close game. So I don't know if that will be the case. Cause then, you know, you, you then Zimmerman's in it for the hall and, and, and you're taking out who may be one of your best hitters in your lineup. If Josh Bell turns around, but I do think there are sort of logical baseball reasons why he got added to this team that, that are paired with the sort of uh, leadership and clubhouse type type deals that, that you mentioned. I'm curious where the team sort of sees themselves in the division because, you know, this is not a, a bad roster by any means. And, you know, we might call it top heavy, but it does have a number of good players. But then you you find the Nationals looking up at the Mets and the Braves, at least by our projections and I think by a lot of places. Yeah. How do they see themselves this year? Are they thinking that they are still in contention to take home a division crown or are they thinking of themselves more as a, a wild card team? Yeah, I mean, certainly publicly, they do not relate themselves 
to anyone in, in the division. And I think, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but but like, but it's interesting because like you can easily say to Mike Rizzo, like you watch the Braves and Mets, and you see Steve Cohen, you know, say he's going to spend all this money. Like, does that push you? And he will say no. But like, you have to think as a competitor that the answer is maybe a bit closer to yes than he lets on. And I, I mean, I think that this team is what it always is. Like they're going to go as their starters do. And if they, those starters go, then they're going to be in that division mix in the wild card mix. And if the starters don't, then they won't be. And I think no one's shy about that identity for the nationals. I mean, like Dave Martinez said last summer, pretty early on when they were already nosediving in the standings, like if we had pitching, we'd be really good, which was a really shocking thing to hear a nationals manager say it was like, well, you know, it's like your, your whole team's been built around that for almost 10 years now. So I think they do view themselves that way because I think they are confident in their, you know, what they say all the time. And it drives me nuts. It's like our horses will be our horses. Right. And like, and if they are, then, then we'll be good. But it's certainly like the heart, maybe the hardest or second hardest division in baseball for horses to be horses. So that there's something to be said for that as well. And also some really good rotations and, and aces to match up in the days of the calendar when aces actually do match up. So I think they, they do vision themselves as contenders, but I also think they know that they maybe made moves like, you know, Kyle Schwarber instead of Michael Brantley or a mishmash of guys instead of JT Romuto. Like there was, there was moves that were desirable or logical for this team that the front office kicked around that they ultimately didn't make because of the finances of it. And I think they are well aware that had they pulled the trigger on some of those, then they would be at the top of the ladder. And and we'd be talking about them as sort of one, one a with the Mets, one, one, a one C I missed the letter Oh, with the Mets and Braves. So I, I think um, that there's no awareness there as well. All right. Well, we just asked you how the Nationals see themselves. We always end these preview segments by asking for a win total prediction. So now we want to know how you see them. How many wins do you expect in 2021? Yeah, I was prepared for that. Excellent. I was not going to be someone that came on and said they couldn't give an answer. <laughs> but I but I am going to do a bit of a cop out and say, like, I think the starting pitching health and performance sort of creates like a very significant pendulum for this team. So uh, I think the offseason was built around improving the offense last year in a small sample size. Nationals offense was, I think, 10th in OPS and 6th in on-base percentage, which are like generally pretty good predictors for team offensive success. So it's not like they were awful, even though they looked really awful at times. So I think it's still starting pitching or bust for this team. So I'll go like 70 to 80 range if the rotation's bad and like 86 to 89 range if the rotation's what it should be. And, but I think it's, I think it swings that way. And maybe 10 wins is a really heavy uh, value to put on that, but I do think it, it really is like where this team makes or breaks their season. Okay. Well, as mentioned, Buzzsaw is coming out in paperback on April 6th. And I imagine you must have had at least a more restful offseason than you did last I year. I didn't write a book in six weeks. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to ask. The Nationals won the World Series on October 30th. Buzzsaw came out in hardcover on March 24th, which yeah. means that it must have had to be done months before that. So, And it's a 320-page book. So uh, yeah. I mean, you had been covering the team and writing about the team all year, obviously. And I guess, I mean, as you said, it was the improbable story is in the subtitle, right? So it probably wasn't like you were thinking all along. (laughs) I'm I'm keeping notes for my Nationals win the World Series book. Yes, that's for sure. If someone (laughs) could have told me in like May... Like, hey, you should uh, write that down. You might need that yeah. for a book someday. I would have been like a book about what the like the you know the the biggest you know, bust in a long time. Uh, How did that actually come together? Then did you get an email after uh, the last data game seven? Hey, want to write a book in the next yeah. uh, couple months? Yes, 
I mean, that's literally what happened. It was like probably, I think it was the morning of the parade, which was a Saturday. And Simon and Schuster asked if I would like to write a book. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. And they said, well, do you want to try? And I said, yeah. And it, it's funny. Like I, I mean, it was by the next Monday I was sitting down and writing. It was just like, it had to, it had to be crunched into eight weeks was the writing and the editing was pretty much all crunched in eight weeks. So Oof. Uh, I know, and I know you've written a book, so you probably like that. Probably makes you shiver, uh, yeah. <laughs> but but I've never done the other one. So now, if I ever um, knock on wood, get to do it again, I'll like be really confused as to why the process is so different. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, if you did it in six eight weeks, then I mean, if you get a year or something, just <laughs> right, easy. Yeah, right. All right. Well, you can read the fruits of Jesse's incredibly compressed labor. By getting the paperback, which you can pre-order now. Again, it's called Buzzsaw. You can find him on Twitter at Darty underscore Jesse. And of course, you can read him regularly covering the Nationals at the Washington Post. Thank you very much, Jesse. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay, let's take one more quick break. And then we will be back with Zahad of Sharma to talk about the team that all of the Nationals ex-Cubs came from. I thought we could all agree. And it felt like five A man who wouldn't compromise I think of him on New Year's Day And do the Chicago promenade All right, it is time to talk about the Chicago Cubs and we are joined, as we usually are, to do that by Sahadev Sharma, who covers the Cubs for The Athletic. Hello, Sahadev. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Always fun doing this every year. Yeah, the Cubs have tried to make it less fun, probably, but we can get <laughs> into that. So there was a lot of change in some respects this offseason for the Cubs and not so much change in other respects. I guess we can start with the man at the top, Theo Epstein. I know you've written a lot about his reasons for moving on, what he might do next and is already doing next. Why do you think he decided to leave the Cubs? How much warning did they have that he was going to do that? And do you think it significantly disrupts how they operate? Yeah, I think it it doesn't disrupt too much as far as how they operate, at least in the grand scheme of things. You know, they're obviously different people, Jed Hoyer and Theo Epstein, how they are looked at as leaders is obviously different. I think there's I think it's impossible to match that kind of aura that Theo Epstein has as good of a leader as Jed Hoyer may be. It's just Theo has this, you know, that aura about him. There's something about him that he commands respect when I, I, I get this feeling that some like random area scout, if Theo reaches out once and says something to them, that feels the world to them, right? That that feels like the world to them, right? It, it's He's a very big name in baseball. So I think there's a difference there. Uh, as good as Jed may turn out to be, and and we still we still really don't know. He had two years at San Diego. We don't know how he is at the very top, and and what type of culture he can build there, and what type of uh, team and organization he can really build. Uh, why Theo left? I think it's it has a lot to do with the pandemic, in the sense that I think when that hit, he kind of realized that this isn't going to be a normal year, and this isn't going to be a normal off season. And I think it kind of entered his head midway through, like as the season was starting up, the 2020 season was starting up. He realized just how difficult everything was going to be, just how the work that it took just to put that season in place. 
was a lot. Uh, I mean, emotionally, right, mentally, and just like getting everything uh, done. There was a lot of work to be done. And now this Cubs team, we, we've known they're going to be in a transition. They've kind of been in the midst of this transition for a while now, it feels like. And and I think these big moves that, that may have needed to be made, whether it's the Darvish trade that actually was made or trading any of these position players like Chris Bryant or Wilson Contreras, if that ever happens, I think Theo wanted Jed to be the one to just just make those choices without anybody else influencing him that may I mean Theo kind of had it in his head that he was out after this year right so why not just give these huge decisions that are that are going to just be the future of this team for the next decade or so they're really going to shape the future of the organization let Jed be the man that that does that since he was the one that was going to take over I think it was always assumed that Jed would take over so once it was kind of set in stone that yeah Theo's moving on at least after 2021 when they sat down and talked about it and went over what needed to be done I think it kind of hit Theo that uh, it's probably best for me to move on. And honestly, you know, he hasn't said it, and I don't even have this, you know, this isn't me, like, reading between the lines as much as I don't know if he loves the whole idea of of where this this needs to go. I don't think he would have loved to have trade you, Darvish, but I think there was a little bit of financial necessity to do that, at least when it happened. When I say necessity, I mean, you know, ownership saying this needs to be done or we need to get to a certain number and and Jed trying to find the best way to do it. Uh, and we can talk about that more, like the whether it was the right decision or not to move Darvish. I can see both sides as far as timing wise, but uh, no fan should enjoy that. And I understand that. But I think I think there I, I think some of that kind of crept into the decision making, even if Theo won't say, you know, I don't want to be a part of a rebuilding again. But he he certainly has other goals. And I think we're kind of seeing that now. Right. With what he's the two aspects of, of what he's doing right now, he's he's getting information on how to get money to like put together a coalition to be an own in an ownership group. And I know that's been uh, something of a goal of his for a while now. He just wants full control over everything. And, and I get it. I've, I've talked to this guy. He, he wants that type of power. I think it's frustrating when, when money gets in his way of, of doing what he wants. I think if he had all control, maybe we'd be talking about, you know, Bryce Harper in a Cubs uniform or something like that. But that, as as well as I, I've also talked to him for years now about the direction the game is going, and I think I, I don't know exactly how you guys feel, but I know I grew up with a with a very different game, and I love baseball. I still love covering baseball. I'm, I'm very happy with my job, and and I love the sport, but it's not as entertaining. It's just not. It's really hard to to argue that this is as entertaining as when more balls were in play. Uh, I love strikeout pitchers. I love seeing 20 strikeout games or someone just dominating in the mound. But you don't even see that as much anymore because pitchers are being pulled in the fifth inning. So it's just a very different game. And I think Theo wants to be a part of trying to figure out a way to get it back in the direction where the contact is valued more and, and pitchers going seven, eight innings happens more. And, and, you know, whatever that means, whether it's rule changes, whatever directions he can pull it, push and pull to, to help it happen. I, I think he'd love to be a part of that. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you, I mean, we'll we'll get to the the finan- the Cubs financial component of that and the various trades you mentioned in a second, but I am curious as someone who, you know, has been sort of in his orbit for a long time, if you have any insight into sort of how his thinking around the aesthetic component of uh the game has evolved and changed and sort of when when did he maybe start to think, "Oh, we've we've shifted too far in one direction versus the other" because I think that was one of the aspects of his comments after he announced that he was leaving the team that that Ben and I kind of perked up and we're like, that's that's interesting coming from him given the direction that the Cubs went and sort of their focus on analytics. So how did this journey <laughs> unfold to him to the extent that you're able to talk about that? Well, you know, I, I think it's actually, it's interesting because he'll differentiate and he did this, I asked him uh, in the middle of last season uh, because the Cubs were tough to watch. Even when the Cubs were winning games at times last year, I was like, oh man, these games are just dragging. There's a lot of strikeouts. There's not a lot of action. They'd end up winning games and, and it would just be just dragging for hours. So I kind of asked him like, what what does he think is the best brand of baseball, right? And and before he gave his answer, he said, well, to win or just to enjoy the game, you know? And so he can differentiate, and he's always done that. And we've talked about this where he knows that, you know, his job is to put a team on the field that can win the most games. And, and that sometimes means, you know, we talk about efficiency and financial flexibility and all that stuff. He knows he has to do that, even if he doesn't love where it goes with the game. So he's he was trying to win. So I, I think he kind of saw the direction it's been going for a few years, but he wasn't going to he wasn't going to just stick to, well, I like this type of brand of baseball. He was just trying to find the best way to win, even if it wasn't as fun for him or as entertaining to him or what he thought would be a more entertaining brand of baseball. So it it ended up with a lot of strikeout guys and a lot of, you know, mostly with this Cubs team, it's strikeouts and and they were hoping for the power and the power just didn't come as much as, as they expected. So I think it's something that's been there for a while. I can tell you that it was, I remember talking to him about this, it wasn't even last season. It was, I want to say, the 2018 season before opening day. I did a long one-on-one with him, and, and we talked about the direction the game was going, and he said something similar that he s- says now, and that's just that, you know, this is a different, there, these are two different components that we're talking about, whether it's, trying to win or trying to put the most aesthetically pleasing product on the field. So as far as you can tell, what were the Cubs front office's marching orders this offseason in terms of spending and why? So I think it's gotten a little clearer as the offseason went on and, and kind of has come to a close now. But I think they they needed to get to a certain number because they just did not know what the future held as far as this summer fans coming in, what type of finances they were going to have. And I, I don't know exactly what that number was, but I do believe that there was there was some concern that, you know, we they couldn't have all these huge contracts. And, and there was just, a, you know, that's why Kyle Schwarber was non-tendered instead of, you know, g- going to arbitration. That's why Darvish was traded. I don't know if it was you have to get here, you have to shed all this payroll and this is just what's going to happen or kind of like we don't know where we're going to be in a couple months 
and there are a few scenarios where if we're at this number, we're we're not like we can't do anything. We we won't be we have no flexibility, and and it's it's just going to be a, a rough situation. And I think that's why Jed was a little aggressive in moving Darvish. I've talked to some people that said. You know, he if he would have been more patient, maybe he could have gotten more. There's no reason why you couldn't wait till midway through this season and and then move Darvish if that's the direction you wanted to go. I think he looked at it as if he's going to get value for anyone, that was someone that he could shed a big contract off his books and get a decent return. And while also looking at it in a completely unbiased way and say, what did I, who did I just trade? I just traded a pitcher coming off a great season, but also on the back end of a huge contract. And typically how do front offices look at contracts? You get all your value on the front end of that deal. And in the back end, if you get any value, it feels like a bonus, right? Most of these guys, they sign, they, they hand out an eight year deal. First four years. Great. If if it lives up to uh, you know expectations, then you won the deal because those back four years, you're kind of looking at it as I just don't expect that person to that player to perform at a level that you know validates a twenty, twenty five, thirty million dollar contract. I think that's how most most front offices look at these, and I think that's how Jed looked at it as. It just in a vacuum, I can see how that trade makes sense. Uh, I think where fans start to struggle where I start to struggle is basically the return, right? You know, these are four Davies is a, is a good pitcher. And I think he'll, he'll fit the Cubs, uh, what the Cubs are trying to do. Well, obviously they the swing and miss is a major issue with this starting staff in general, but, uh, four lottery tickets essentially with the prospects that they got. And, you know, I, I've heard good things about them and, and maybe one of them turns into a superstar. But right now it's just it's it's a lot for fans to just look at and say who and what did they get? They couldn't. I mean, this is a stacked farm system in the Padres and they couldn't get Mackenzie Gore. They couldn't get C.J. Abrams. I I mean, those I, I knew that that was unlikely, but fans want that big name that they can cling to and say, we got a top 20 prospect at least because Darvish had become so fun to watch. He was must-see TV for Cubs fans, and you know, to the point that David Ross called every day that he pitched win day, and, and now that that's gone, you know, they, that's that's gone. I know I enjoyed watching it. I enjoy covering a guy like you, Darvish. So it's it's a tough pill to swallow for fans. I think that you've summed up the Darvish reality very well. I'm curious about the the Chris Bryant hypothetical. So we have gone through a whiplash of of rumors when it comes to Bryant this offseason. He was definitely going to be on the Mets. He was potentially going to be non-tendered. He is now potentially open to a contract extension with Chicago. So I want to ask this in two parts. The first is I'm curious how close you think he actually came at least so far because you know it's not as if uh, opening day has dawned and he has run out onto the field for the Cubs but how close the team actually came to moving him this offseason and then just stepping back sort of what the state of the relationship is between Bryant and the front office because you know he he went through this contentious grievance process that he was ultimately not triumphant in. He had a down year last year. Where were they with him and where do you expect they're going to be with him in the months to come? Yeah, I I think they, I mean, I know they definitely were 
in you know talks with teams i don't think anything came super close i don't think they were about to pull off a deal and things fell through i'm not even 100 percent sure that they got uh deep into talks where they were like where they had like a kind of a framework set like yeah that would make sense let me let me you know run some things by some other people i don't think it got that far i, I mean it, it got to the point where Bryant, I mean, rumors were flying to the point that Bryant got a text that said, welcome to the Mets uh, from an unknown number that he, some Connecticut number <laughs> sent him that text. I can tell you probably around that same time, I was getting some texts that say, hey, dig into this. You can probably tell by the fact that I didn't tweet anything about it or anything like that, that, that it, I didn't feel comfortable with that information to the point where I thought it was real. And obviously nothing fully came of it. I don't know if, uh, if there was bad information out there, if Jed's downplaying uh, how deep those, those conversations actually were. He says there's no truth to that to those Mets rumors that were kind of popping up maybe, what was it, two, three weeks ago now, maybe a month ago now. Chris basically said that when he got that text, he immediately called his agent, Scott Boris. Boris touched base with Jed and and, and immediately was all shut down. As far as the relationship, according to Jed and Bryant, it's great. And, and Chris isn't one to kind of uh I, I don't think he he lies to us uh outright you know i don't think he's sugar coating things and there's actually this very contentious relationship happening i think what's a, he he seemed to really appreciate the communication that hoyer and he had this offseason he said they spoke pretty regularly uh, whenever there were rumors that he happened to come by he tries to avoid them but it's inevitable because people text you he would have a free-flowing conversation with Jed and, and get told, this is what's real, this is what's not real, this is where we're at in this process. And I think uh, Bryant really appreciated that. I don't I don't think there's bad blood, like significant bad blood to the point that Chris wants to get out of Chicago. I think he, he enjoys the organization. I think he feels valued uh, to a degree, but he also knows this is a business. And, you know, it, I mean, this isn't the only organization that's gamed service time. Uh, so he understands that it's also it's a business, but he also wants to kind of get his in a sense. I'd say that as far as me, when I look at the possibility of an extension, I, I, I think the odds are greater than they ever. I, I feel that they're greater than they previously were. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're they're significantly greater. I just I would say it was really close to almost zero percent in previous years that Chris Bryant would sign an extension. Now, I mean, I think he really does. This is going to sound kind of silly, but I, I really do think he has a different outlook on life since his kid was born, which was uh, right after the shutdown. I want to say sometime in April. He has a kid. He brings it up a lot, how his perspective has changed, how it's helped him kind of pull away from criticism, perhaps, and and not really. He doesn't obsess over numbers or results as much anymore. I think he was really he's, – he's kind of a perfectionist and expects to be the best. And when he – I mean, the reality is he really hasn't been. He's been banged up and just not as productive as he was in, you know, 15, 16, 17. So I, I think uh, I, I think part of that, the fact that he's, you know, has this kind of different perspective, 
may allow him to say, you know, maybe this is what makes me happy. Maybe what I just want is, you know, yeah, get a decently sized contract, uh, but I can stick with the Cubs. I, I'd still be surprised. I think the priority for the Cubs in order, because it's realistic and, and just how it may work, is get Baez locked up, then bring back Rizzo. And, you know, if, if Bryant happens, I'd, I'd be surprised. But it, I, I think the Padres kind of showed, hey, we can lock up superstars and, and you don't need to worry about the the money aspect as much. Just just get the superstars locked up and and uh, roll with that. Yeah, the Cubs just haven't been operating much like the Padres lately. They've been trading their ace to the Padres, in fact. So so not only are there questions about that trio and and their long-term future with the Cubs, but also their short-term performance, right? Because the Cubs' offense was not good last year, and it hasn't really changed in terms of the names other than swapping out Kyle Schwarber for Jack Peterson, who's about as similar a player to Kyle Schwarber as you could possibly find. So a lot of the hope for a bounce back here has to come from Bryant and Baez and Rizzo, who ranged from mediocre to terrible last year. So what's the outlook for getting bounce back years from those three? Well, you know, Jed's really playing up the walk year aspect of it. And and that's a real thing, right? There's There's been uh, studies done that show that players have a bump in OPS, position players have a bump in OPS in their walk years. Jed kind of pointed to Dexter Fowler, who had two, technically two walk years with the Cubs in 15 and 16. And 15, that second half, he was about as good as you can get. And 16, I believe, was his career best year. You know, I, I think that's the optimistic view of it. I But I also tend to be on the optimistic side because... Just look at the history with Bryant. When, as long as he's healthy, and you can't, I, I'm not going to assume health with him anymore. Just because it seems like something's popped up every year for the last couple of years, even if they're not the same injuries popping up, there have been things popping up, and he just doesn't perform as well. Even if it's not the type of debilitating injury that puts him on the injured list, it does. It does seem to impact him significantly, and he goes from MVP caliber player to average at best last year was just a mess there were multiple injuries last year uh, from an elbow injury in the summer camp that seemed to clear up and then almost immediately a few maybe a week into the season there was a wrist injury and then I believe there was uh, like an oblique injury or something like that towards the end of the season so there were multiple things that popped up uh, if he's healthy, I mean, just go look at the numbers. When he's healthy, he is plays at a he performs at an MVP level. It's it's not really. I know fans want to pick everything apart with him, but as long as the health is there, he's he excels at the plate. Javi, I have more questions at the plate just because you know he's always been one of those guys who the peripherals don't match up with the performance when he's when he's actually performing. But I also think he's the type of player that maybe just, you know, I, I don't want to stare too long at the peripherals because there's something about him that he can just do something special at the plate every once in a while. And it may not make total sense, but hey, it works. And I, I think it was real for him. I mean, think of all the players you think of that just kind of, I mean, is there anyone that you think of more? Maybe Tatis, but... Uh, Javi really feeds off the fans, and I just think that hurt him a lot. He said no in-game video hurt him a lot. I think that stuff's real, 
and when a guy brings it up and says, yeah, that bothered me, I, I, I want to I wanna listen to him. I don't think they're making excuses. I think they're just trying yeah. to let us into their world. And then Rizzo, I, I think it was two months. It was two months of okay ball, and he's going to give you at least a 140 weighted runs created plus, play great defense at first base. That's the other thing with Javi. He's going to be a plus-plus defender at short. So just, I mean, you take that on its own, right? So with those three, I expect bounce backs. If I was supposed to bet, if you if you're asking me who I trust the most, it's Rizzo. Every year, year in and year out, since he made the uh, big changes, I believe it was in 13 or 14, to his uh, to his batting style, he's just he, he's just one of those. Unless he is injured, I don't expect him to to struggle. He's he may have a bad month or so, or an average month, but he's he's just as consistent as it gets. I want to ask about one of the additions that they made this year, which is. Jack Peterson, Ben mentioned him being sort of similar in a lot of respects to Schwarber. I, I'm curious what you think the real usage is going to end up being with him because, you know, he is a very productive bat against right-handed hitting and during his career has been pretty terrible against lefties. And I know there's been conversation about him getting, you know, an opportunity to to hit against both, but do you think that that's – is that a real thing? Because – he he does so well when they when he is smartly platooned and it seems like they're saying what if we what if we didn't do that though <laughs> yeah uh, well i think that's part of why he signed with the cubs is uh, he kind of sold himself as an everyday player and i think ross kind of loves that ross loves uh, uh, you know i believe in myself i can do this and and ross kind of embraced that idea and said okay prove it to us and i think they'll let him play every day to start the season and if it's a mess then, then he's going to sit against lefties uh, eventually. Uh, I think, you know, I don't think it hurts because who, who I guess I'm, I'm trying to remember who they, they added Jake Marisnik and right. the other, uh, there's another outfielder that would, uh, that could potentially play. And I, I'm blanking on who the uh, fourth or fifth outfielder is uh, either way. Oh, Cameron Mabin, uh, you know, our, yeah, you could play those guys ahead of Jock Peterson and get decent production, I guess, against lefties. But I think uh, I think they're going to let Jock play. And just, you know, this is a small difference, but it matters for the Cubs. But Jock Peterson crushes high fastballs. And yeah. it's just been something I've watched with this Cubs team get taken advantage of by the high fastball for years now the Cubs fans will remember this 2017 middle of the summer they went to LA and they were just dominated and all the Dodgers pitchers did was pound the upper zone uh, with fastballs and then throw chase breaking balls and the Cubs were just confounded it was I remember this series because I think it was uh, San Diego and LA and it was just a terrible week for the Cubs. They they were embarrassed in LA and then I think they went to San Diego afterwards and struggled against a banned San Diego team. I may have it kind of uh, mixed up as far as what was going on that year and, and mixing up some road trips, but I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And, and then it happened again in the playoffs, right? They were completely shut down by the Dodgers and it's been an issue since then. And I've, I've written about this. They struggle with the high fastball and they struggle with chase breaking balls. Kyle Schwarber had gotten better at that, but he didn't hit them. He'd just gotten better at not chasing and and kind of fighting them off. I, I think there's a significant difference in how they perform against that. So that's one little thing that's a team-wide issue uh, that 
Peterson kind of helps with. So yeah, is he is it going to completely transform the offense? No. Have they been looking to transform the offense? Yes, for sure. Uh, they just haven't found the right guys or made the right moves yet to to really to really get that done. And maybe that's what maybe that's coming in 2022 with all this free all these guys heading for free agency. So let's talk about the rotation. Almost an entire rotation's worth of pitchers departed this offseason for one reason or another. Tyler Chatwood, John Lester, Jose Quintana, Drew Darvish. And perhaps not surprisingly, the Fangrass starting rotation projections for the Cubs have them 28th in baseball <laughs> ahead of only the Pirates and the Orioles, which is not where you want to be if you are thinking of yourself as a contending team. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Meg didn't make the numbers. I didn't the, do it. The, the Cubs <laughs> made the numbers. So Darn you, Meg. <laughs> so we've talked earlier this offseason about how it's just an uncommonly soft-tossing rotation for this era of baseball, contact-oriented. The Cubs seem to be trying to help out Theo Epstein in his quest to bring back contact here by building this rotation. So... Is it better than the projections say? What will it actually look like? Because there's some uncertainty about who will actually end up starting these games. How do you see this shaking out? Well, I think we have three locks, right? There's uh, Hendricks, Davies, and Arietta. I think Hendricks, uh, you know, we know what to get. We, we know what to expect from him. Uh, and he, I'm not sure how projections look at him uh, right now. But I know in the past, they haven't always loved Kyle Hendricks and and he right. manages to outperform the the projections and I, you know I think we're starting to understand a little bit more about why with the seam shifted wake stuff and and the Cubs really do seem to do well with command oriented pitchers who have who pitch more east west than north south and and that's directly against the trend in baseball but they do have some success there and and Davies is a similar pitcher even if there's a, a slight differences there and i and i think they're excited to work with him and see if they can kind of maximize that and build off a solid solid results wise season uh for him in 2020 Arietta, it's going to require some changes they they've kind of honed in on some things that they that they want to correct with his delivery. And, and so he can kind of focus on being the pitcher he once was. I think in Philadelphia, he got away from his uh, game plan of, of kind of pounding down and away from righties with his sinker and then, and then going off of that. And then kind of his last step would be uh, working North South pounding upstairs with fastballs and then getting the chase breaking ball. And, and I think in Philadelphia, it was kind of emphasized to, to, you know, try and work North South. And that's just not the type of pitcher Jake Arietta is. And I think doing that got him out of his mechanics as did injuries. So it was just a big mess for him. I don't know if he can get back to even, you know, he's not going to get back to 15 or 16. I I know he'd love to tell us that he will, but I just don't see that happening. Uh, if he can get to some version of his 17 self, that's a solid mid-rotation pitcher. And he's also a great mentor for a lot of these guys. He's been spending a lot of time with Edward Alzali. Alzali, my guess, would will end up in the rotation to the start of the season. Obviously, you're going to need more than five pitchers, but he's probably the best stuff guy, best guy for a chance to miss bats in this rotation. Really figured some things out at the end of last year. He's got he's got five pitches. He's got a curveball. He's got a slider. He's got a four-seam fastball, a changeup, and he's a two-seamer. The slider and the two-seamer are kind of new. 
And when he came back, he went to the alternate site last year. And you got to remember, this team has a completely different player development infrastructure put in place for the 2020 season. Craig Breslow was the director of pitching. Now he's assistant GM, and I, I think it's VP of pitching or something like that. And he the infrastructure that he kind of built in player development with pitching is, is really focused in on pitch design and all these things that we talk about with player development that's that's kind of uh, uh, you know changed things for the Dodgers and the Astros and all these other uh, organizations that were kind of ahead of the game the Cubs are are they believe that they've caught up and and they're doing some some cutting edge things as well and Elsley worked on some things very specifically in particular making sure that that slider was different velocity and and in different shape than his curveball when he came back he was a different pitcher I I was impressed I had I had gotten to the point where I'm like okay it may be time to kind of see what this guy is as a reliever and when he came back I was like okay they they found something and they really unlocked something with this guy and and you have to see what he is as a starter he has a higher ceiling than most of the guys in this rotation. So I think this is a big year for him. Kind of build up those innings as as however you can in this weird season after last year and and just kind of see what he is. Because the rest of the guys, Trevor Williams, Alec Mills, Cole Stewart, I mean, these guys are all, you know, going to get ground balls and soft contact, which, again, works for the Cubs to a degree, but, you know, kind of reduces the margin for error there. And, you know, I love this defense. I think they have a great defense, especially if you put Nico Horner at second. I, I don't think there's a weakness. I think Chris Bryant watching him is he's not a bad third baseman and he got significantly better last year. Ian Happ's about average in center field and, and, you know, jocks about average and left. And then you have plus everywhere else, Nico, uh, Javi, Anthony Rizzo, Jason Hayward, and Wilson Contreras. I mean, those are all good defenders now, good defenders to great defenders. So I, I think it can work. I also, I also think it could go sideways quickly. You know, if Jake Arrieta doesn't really figure things out and that hard contact is here to stay, it doesn't matter how good the defense is, right? If if these guys start getting hit around and and they're not precise and and all these these things that they think they're figured out just just don't really you know work out, then yeah, it could get pretty ugly. And all the you know fixes on offense and. And however good the bullpen may be, I, I don't think it matters if the defense isn't that good or if uh, if the pitchers are just giving up hard contact instead of soft contact because they're not going to miss bats. We know that uh, for the most part. Yeah, you you brought up the bullpen, which I guess we can we can shift to. They they finished by our war at Fangraphs. They finished 19th in the majors last year. They are projected for 19th <laughs> in the majors this year. They they added Brandon Workman, but a lot of this crew I think is the same. And I want to talk about Craig Kimbrell because he had an interesting season. I mean, I don't want to make too much of, you know, 15 innings out of a reliever in a very weird year. His ERA improved some, although not great. His peripheral numbers improved, although still not um, to where he was. He was striking out a lot more guys. I know that some of his usage changed between his fastball and his curveball. I assume that he is just going to close games for Chicago, um, if if only for lack of better options. But what do you expect out of Kimbrel this year, which I believe is his final year on this deal, right? And then they have an option for 2022 based on innings pitched or what have you? Right. Yeah. No, you're right on the contract status there. I, 
I mean, you had to watch him every day to really appreciate that the kind of transition that he made over the course of the year, because I mean, I, I think Cubs fans remember 2019 Craig Kimbrell and it was a disaster. It's hard to forget that one of the final weekends of the season, uh, they had a huge series with the Cardinals. I believe they got swept in a four game series and Kimbrell blew a few of those games and and at one point, they had taken a late lead, a one-run lead, and Kimberl gave up back-to-back home runs on consecutive pitches. And it was just that kind of summed up his season. It was just he could not find any sort of rhythm. He, the stuff looked bad. And then to start 2020, it was much of the same. I think his first outing, ton of walks. His second outing, a bunch of home runs. He never blew a save uh, early on there, uh, but and they won those games, but he just looked completely lost. Turns out his mechanics were completely out of whack. They they identified that early on, and they just kept working on it, working on it, working on it. There's one theory that because over the spring he was kind of trying to add his changeup back to his repertoire, that by by doing that, it got his mechanics out of whack he was becoming too rotational to try and get the right uh, movement on his changeup and that screwed up his fastball and curveball and and they were bad they they just were not good pitches he had no command uh when he did throw it in the zone it was line drive after line drive i really thought i was watching the end of a career he some point in august he figured it out and there was one bad outing towards the end of the month in August where he kind of got uh, hit around by the Reds. But other than that, he was pretty dominant. Uh, he didn't walk a guy or give up a run in September. He struck out like he was pushing 50% strikeout rate. It was utter dominance. And by the end of uh, the 2020 season, he was touching 99. So so his velocity had, had returned to really at his peak form and and he really looked as good definitely as good as he's ever been in a Cubs uniform but probably as good as he's been since 2018-2017 you know as long as he's healthy and those mechanics don't go uh, south once again I think he can be pretty dominant I think he's still got a little more left in the tank and and I think how valuable is that to the Cubs I think it's valuable in a sense that if they're competing they have a lockdown closer but probably more valuable to them considering where they are and and the talent that they have I think he could be a huge trade piece for them maybe bigger than say Chris Bryant or or really anybody else on the roster this was an offseason of change some stalwarts moved on we talked about Theo and of course Schwerber and John Lester and Albert Amora and even Len Casper in the broadcast booth and then you have the Bryant Rizzo Baez trio in their final year under team control so is there a sense that the Cubs are coming to the end of something is there going to be a, an official we're embarking on a rebuild or tear down type of thing or will it just be sort of phasing people out and trying to replace people without missing a beat yeah i 
I wouldn't look at this as at least uh, ideally Jed Hoyer doesn't want to go through a full rebuild again. I think the way they look at it, what they did when they first came with Theo and Jed and all of them did when they first came to Chicago is something they never want to repeat, especially, I mean, ownership doesn't want to. Dom Ricketts has said that before for all, you know, all the criticism he takes. That's one thing that he's been adamant about. He That was a one-time thing and, and this team should, this organization should be competing year in and year out uh we haven't heard from him you know as a group since the pandemic hit but i would assume he still feels that way these moves uh jed was clear when when we asked him you know these these the return for darvish seems that's those guys are really far away should we read into this as far as what the timeline is and he specifically said he said don't do that in fact i would say our timeline is significantly quicker than those players timeline is so i think what what he's suggesting there is yeah some of those players could be part of the next great cubs team if things work out but some of them could also be used to make another move to kind of bring in talent when when they're doing that when they're bringing in talent again uh, major league talent again I think this year, why it's so critical, it's going to tell us a lot about how quickly they can kind of become, if they are going to get become one of the great teams again, how quickly it can happen. Uh, whether it's extending Baez or, and Rizzo, whether it's trading guys like Kimbrell and Bryant at the deadline, whatever it is, whatever direction they go, they can't they can't hit this offseason, this next offseason, and have everybody walk in free agency. And another key is going to be we don't know how good this player development system is right now uh, compared to what it used to be because we didn't have a minor league season. I'm I'm hearing a lot of optimism. I, I hear about guys like Cole Franklin. I hear about guys like Chase Strumpf. You know, these are guys that aren't in top 100 lists. And, and you know, maybe Franklin someday ends up in one. But, you know, everyone knows who or prospect hounds know who Brennan Davis is. They know who Braylon Marquez is, Miguel Amaya. Those are good prospects. But I think what they're they're looking for is how good can these prospects be? What type of breakouts are they going to have this year? If you're talking about an off, a, a, a season where, you know, the, the prospects stagnate and they don't and the, the major league team isn't that great and there aren't any significant trades made or or no extensions handed out, then, yeah, I don't know how you avoid a rebuild because nothing then there's just really no optimism there. Uh, but we need to see how things transpire this summer to really have a good idea. But I think there's a way that they can go from really good uh, or solid contending team right now, contending-ish, you know, depending on how optimistic or pessimistic you want to be, to uh, a really good organization once again if things go well. They need to, you know, they need some luck on their side. And frankly, they had luck when they embarked on the first rebuild, right? You, you don't, I mean, when you get someone like Jake Arrieta and turn him into what he was, that, that required a little luck. Kyle Hendricks, a little bit of luck there, right? So you need that luck, but they also need to nail their trades. They need to nail their evaluations. And they have to hope that what they did when they revamped player development and amateur scouting was the right move. And, and they nailed that as well. All right. So I guess it is time to ask you how optimistic or pessimistic you want to be. We will end, <laughs> as always, with the win total prediction for 2021. Oh, man. Yeah, it's tough. I I could see like this, and I 
probably said this last year too, but it, it just feels different. This it just feels like a wide variance. I could see this team being really good because the defense is great and the pitching just kind of clicks. Because I like this bullpen. I know we didn't talk a lot about it, but I kind of like it. Even with Rowan Wick is kind of a question mark right now, and that that gives me some hesitation. But I I feel like they've figured some things out of how to unlock relievers. So I'm not concerned about the bullpen. I'm always concerned about this offense because they've they've given me no reason to believe that they can be consistent. I think I I lean towards like close to 500, so like 80. I, I think if, if I was forced to put a number, I'd say like 83, 84. I'll just say 84 wins. I think they missed the playoffs. I don't think I think I don't think there's going to be a wild card from the NL Central. And I right now at this point, I, I'd pick the Cardinals to win the division. So I, I think it's like an 84 win team. I think they could be a lot better than that. I think they could be a lot worse. If they sell at the deadline, then, you know, throw out all predictions as far as win total. It could get ugly in the second half. But I also think that, you know, maybe that's best. That would be best for the organization is to is to have a deadline where you trade guys and kind of reset the roster and, and you're looking at a more contact oriented offense and, and some prospects coming up that, that can miss bats and all sorts, you know, that's, that's how you kind of rebuild this without uh, taking it all the way to the bottom for multiple years. Well, Cubs fans saw an 84 win team two years ago. So there you go. <laughs> if you wanted more of that, we're running it back. <laughs> okay. You can find Sahadev on Twitter at Sahadev Sharma. You can, of course, read him regularly at The Athletic. He does great work. Thank you, as always, Sahadev. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure coming on. That will do it for today and for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Benjamin Book, or possibly Buke, Dan Boshane, Aaron M. Mori, Rob Fibbs, and Jason George. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back with another team preview podcast next time. Looks like the Angels and the Royals up next. Talk to you then. Kind of